Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Okay, what I want to do is I want to continue with a second in a series we're just doing through this uh, season uh, leading up to Christmas that we're calling The Coming uh, of Jesus and a Story of. And last week, we did uh, The Coming of Jesus and a Story of Courage. And this morning, I want to focus on faith. Uh, the Coming of Jesus and a Story of Faith. Um, and essentially, what we're doing is we're looking at smaller stories within the bigger story. So the bigger story, obviously, is The Coming of Jesus. But within the coming of Jesus, there are a whole series of smaller stories made real for us uh, in the lives of, if you like, secondary characters in the bigger story. Because Jesus is always going to be the primary character in that story. And so last week, we looked at a story of courage as exemplified in the life of Joseph. And this morning, I want to look at... Um, a story of faith uh, in the life of the other individual in this bigger story who's maybe in many ways the most significant person other than Jesus, and that's Mary. So let me just get jump right in and read the text this morning that we're going to focus on, and it's um, from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Let me just read that through, and I'm reading from uh, today's New International Version. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Mary had an inner beauty. A beauty of heart, I believe, that was so appealing and so endearing to God that he chose her to become the mother of the Son of God of Jesus. 
I want to I, I suggest to you this morning, and that's really all I can do because I don't know this for sure, but I want to suggest to you, I want to submit to you that the central aspect of Mary's inner beauty was her faith. I believe the quality of her inner life that made her stand out from all others such that God in his sovereignty selected her to be the one to bear and bring forth Jesus, the heavenly king, was this dimension of who she was that I'm going to call faith this morning. I really believe that if Joseph was a study in courage, Mary is a study in faith. And... um, she teaches us how we too can have the kind of faith that she had, the kind of faith that if we cultivate it and walk in it, can cause us as those that God has also set his favor upon in terms of his grace, can enable us to become change agents in the world around us in whatever way God has called us to do that. That's going to look different to the call to Mary. That was unique, that call upon her life, right? But God has called all of us to be those who change the world around us by relating to him with the kind of faith I believe that Mary had. So I want to look at just three things about her and what these three things about Mary that are contained in this passage say to us about faith and how that faith can be real in our own lives. And that's what I want to do this morning. So let me jump into that. The first thing I want you to see about this is Mary was a young believer. We know from the text that Mary was a virgin and she was a pledge to be married to this guy called Joseph. And this points to the reality that Mary was likely, likely in her early teens when the angel appeared to her. The biblical scholars I've read seem to put her age somewhere between 13 and 15. Though she was young, Mary had a mature faith even as a teenager. And I want you to see that this morning. Even as someone that was possibly just between 13 and 15 years of age, which is very young, she had a faith that was mature. The message the angel brought was going to change her life radically. I mean, that's kind of like an understatement, really. I don't know how to describe that adequately, but that message that was brought to her was going to radically change her life. But she responded to it, from what I can see in the Scripture here, with the simplicity of a profound, mature faith. You know, many of the heroes in the Bible had mature faith when they were young. Now, you may think that's counterintuitive, that you don't have mature faith when you're young. You have to be old to have mature faith, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. But the truth is, in the canon of Scripture, there are lots of instances of young people, godly people, who had a mature faith. Let me give you a few examples. Samuel. You know the prophet Samuel? God called him when he was a young boy, and he responded with a real childlike faith. David, as a teenager, David who went on to become king, attributed his success to fighting the lions and the bears and protecting the flocks to the Lord. He defeated Goliath. 
by instead of fixing his eyes on himself and his own capability, fixing his eyes on the Lord, trusting in the Lord's presence the, and the armies of heaven and the God of Israel. David did that as a young person. And then you have Daniel. He was perhaps only about 16 years of age when he and his friends were taken into captivity. Yet despite their youth, they had deep faith in the Lord. They were willing to face death rather than bend the knee and worship false gods. Now these are just three examples in the scripture. There are others. It, is it surprising then that God would set his favor and affection upon this young girl Mary for the purpose for which God was going to communicate to her through the angel Gabriel, namely to conceive Jesus through the Spirit and to bring, uh, to bring forth Jesus uh, in that time. No, it's not surprising. It's not surprising. Because Mary believed. That last song we sang this morning about God of miracles, the refrain is about a choice to believe. She believed in the personal God of Israel. The key phrase I want you to think about for a moment is this, the promise, the Lord is with you. This is what the angel said to her. The Lord is with you. Mary's faith was not based on a creed or a religion. Her faith was based on a personal belief in the God that she knew to be with her. Sadly, most of the religious leaders of her time were more into their religion than they were into relationship with the living God. A personal relationship with the Lord God is what sets biblical faith, hear me here, apart from other religious options in the world. A personal relationship with the living God is the unique characteristic, I believe, of biblical faith. You know, in Hebrews eleven six, the author says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. That in and of itself is an incredible statement, isn't it? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and not just that he exists, but that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You know, God is a person and as a person, he can be pleased. And I believe he can be ticked off too. But he can be pleased. And faith begins when we believe, yes, that he exists, but that his basic orientation towards us is to reward us and not punish us. Let me say that again. I really believe that the Lord wants, in the first instance, to reward us, to bless us, to put his favor upon us. The whole reality of the coming of Christ speaks to that. The grace of God, the favor of God being showered on us. Paul Eason uses the phrase in Galatians, uh, he, he describes the grace of God as being lavished on us. I believe Mary understood that and she responded to that believed and anticipated that God was going to be faithful to this word to reward her. Not because of anything she had done, but because of his sovereign grace in her life. You know, today we do the same thing when we believe in Jesus. 
This passage teaches us that Jesus is God who became man. The Bible explains that he did this in order to take the punishment for our sins and to offer us eternal life. You know that famous passage, many of you, but some of you here this morning may not know this. These are the words of Jesus. He said, for God so loved the world, speaking of his Father God and of himself, that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Question this morning is, have you believed in Jesus? Have you put your personal trust in him? If you haven't and you're here this morning, it's great that you're in church. We love the fact that you're here. We hope you'll come again. But this is not about us just coming to church on Sunday. It's a, that's an expression of the fact that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. And he wants you to have that too. And you can do that today before you leave here. You can put your trust in Christ. Come alive to God. We sang that song. There were so many amazing lines in that song about, I think it was the last one, but it may have been one of the earlier ones about us coming alive. The God of miracles. He makes those that are dead come alive. And the Bible says we're all dead in trespasses and sins until the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That makes us come alive on the inside to Jesus. And we do that simply with a step of genuine faith, of trust, of belief in him. Mary had a mature faith even as a teenage girl, a strength and maturity to her faith. We know this because the scripture tells us that Mary was a virgin. The young woman to whom the angel came had never been with a man. She'd never had sexual relationships with a man. She was a virgin. And the Greek word there can be rendered either girl or virgin. But in the context, it's clear that it speaks to virgin because in verse 34, we know emphatically and explicitly that Mary had never had sexual intercourse, so she was a virgin. And the angel's message to Mary was about her becoming pregnant by supernatural means through the Holy Spirit. Let me say this, you know, the virgin birth is not incidental to the story of Jesus. It's right at the center. It reinforces the reality that he was both God and man. Only as God could Jesus reveal God to us. Only as God could Jesus take upon himself the sin of the world. Only as man could Jesus identify with your humanity and mine, our weakness, our proclivity to temptation. And only as God and man can Jesus stand as our advocate before the throne of God, which is what he does right now. He's in our corner every day. So her readiness to believe is also conveyed in that Mary was engaged to be married. Mary was pledged to be married to this guy called Joseph. And I said a little bit about this last week when talking about Joseph, that um, betrothal would typically take place when a woman was uh, entering into puberty. And it was another one of those cultural practices that points to the fact that Mary was probably just in her very early teens at this point. When this happened, it must have been for her 
I don't know, we have to do some cultural transference. It's kind of hard to do it. But you just think of a wedding now. When two people are engaged and beginning to plan the wedding, there's expectation, there's excitement, there's everything that you're looking forward to. And she must have been looking forward to that day, being betrothed to Joseph and all that was going to follow from that. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> up shows Gabriel <laughs> from the presence of God and throws all the wedding plans into total disarray. I checked this out. According to Jewish law, betrothal established a legal relationship between a man and a woman binding on both parties. And you can find reference to that in Deuteronomy 20, verse 7, 22, verses 23 to 27. And it usually took place after the conclusion of the marriage contract between the parents and was performed by the exchange of something of a certain value between the parties. And there would be an interval between the betrothal and the marriage of about a year, during which time the woman and all she had belonged, judicially speaking, because of the norms of the time and the culture, to the future husband. And if she was unfaithful to him in any way during this betrothal period, it would tantamount to adultery. Now, you may or may not know, but under the Old Testament law, adultery was punishable by stoning to death. At this time, however, the Romans, the Roman Empire, the Romans had control of Judea, did they not? They were in control. And so they were responsible for the administration of quote-unquote justice. So the Jews were not able to <clears throat> they didn't have the authority to carry out capital punishment during that time. So Mary would not have faced the prospect of death, but she would have faced the prospect of divorce. The idea that she was now pregnant during the betrothal period. She also would have faced public shame, social stigmatism, ostracism from uh, the community of which she was a part. The thing I want you to see, though, is in, in the context of all that, she trusted God. In the face of the cultural, the legal, the religious realities of the day, and all that would have meant for her, she trusted the God who spoke to her through the voice of Gabriel. She was a young but real faith-filled believer. And Mary's response here teaches us something. And the first thing I want to say about what it teaches us is this. Faith is not age-dependent. You don't have to wait until you're old or older to become mature in faith. In fact, age guarantees nothing at all, spiritually speaking. Now, if you're getting old like me, you want to listen up to this, okay? It's also an inspiration for those of you that are younger. Age guarantees nothing spiritually. Now, it guarantees a lot of other things. Slower reactions, I'm discovering. Slower recovery time when you get hurt. Impaired vision. 
senior moments. <laughs> I've had a few of those in the last week. But the one thing age does not guarantee is spiritual maturity. Some of the most immature Christians have been around a long time nurturing their immaturity and growing old with it. I'm serious. Don't be mistaken into thinking that age necessarily brings maturity or wisdom. Now, it can do. But it can also bring a sustained immaturity and foolishness. Think of Eli's sons in the Old Testament, Hophni and Phinehas. They were older than Samuel, but they lacked the kind of spiritual maturity he had even when he was young. The rest of Jesse's sons were older than David, but they didn't exhibit the kind of mature faith that he did. Faith is not an age-dependent reality. It is a God-dependent reality. Many young people are more spiritually mature than those who are decades older. Why? Why can that be a reality? Because they're simply willing to take God at his word, to trust him implicitly, to rely on him completely. And sometimes those of us that are older, we've been on the journey a lot longer, yeah? We've got a lot more junk, a lot more stuff that gets in the way, and we allow that stuff to complicate our faith and our relationship with God. And in turn, it kind of robs us of that simple capacity to be able to just believe and trust him and take him at his word. Instead of rationalizing why we shouldn't do that because of all the stuff that we have gone through. Listen, God calls us not just to believe him for our salvation, but to believe him for our sanctification. Yes, when we put our trust in him, we're justified, but you know there's that whole process in life called sanctification, being set apart unto him, becoming more like him, and that is a journey. Scripture uses different metaphors for it. You can call it a journey. You can call it a marathon. It takes time for that to happen. But God wants us to trust him as much in that as we do for saving faith when we first put our trust in Jesus. You know, God calls us not just to believe him for forgiveness of sin, but to believe him for favor from heaven. Not just to believe him for yesterday, but to believe him for tomorrow. Ecclesiastes exhorts us to establish a pattern of believing God when we're young so that we will believe in him when we're old. It says this, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble. Because <laughs> I hate to say this to you young ones, but the longer you go, there's more of that trouble stuff. So the thing is, remember the creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years of approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. All right, so the second thing I want you to see about Mary is this. Mary was an honored believer. She was an honored believer, not just a young one. 
Gabriel greeted her with this. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What kind of a declaration is that? You know, to this young girl, the angel Gabriel shows up and he says, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So the angel declared that to be true. And we know in verse 30, uh, again, we have, you have found favor with God. The word favor comes from the root word for grace. Mary was not being rewarded for something she had done. She was being selected by God in accord with his sovereign grace for his purpose. And the angel was going to describe to her shortly what that purpose was. A supernatural and redemptive purpose. Mary did not earn the right to be selected for this honor. But there can be little doubt, I think, that God selected her in part because of the character qualities and the godliness of her, as it were, on the inside. And the angel declared that God was with Mary. And he did this, obviously, to reassure her for everything that was coming, right? There's no reassurance like hearing from God, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. I ain't going to check out on you. I'm with you. The angel of the Lord told Gideon in the Old Testament that the Lord would be with him when he sent him out with his faithful 300 in Israel to defeat the Midianites. says, I'm with you. The same was true of David, who we've already talked about this morning. When God's Spirit fell upon him and empowered him to lead Israel, there was a declaration, the Lord, I am with you, David. And this is what God said to Mary. She was facing the possibility of rejection from her husband, Joseph, the community around her. And yet she chose to believe the Lord who made the promise to her simply, Mary, I'm with you. You know, the same is true for us who follow Jesus today. We are never alone. The promise of the Lord to us is, I am with you. He says that to us corporately. He says that to each of us in the circumstances and the situations and the reality of our lives in every season, whatever it looks like. The Lord says, I am with you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm not going to check out on you. I am with you. Understand that. The Lord is with you this morning. He will never send you, therefore, to do something of service to him without his presence and without providing you the resources and support you need in him. You remember what's now become in Christian circles kind of an old adage, but I think it's true that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He equips us as we step into the calling, whatever that is that God has for us. He commissions us, Jesus did, to make disciples of all nations. And what did he say to us in the great commission? The mission he's on that we co 
operate with him in. The great commission in Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you unto the end of the age. When we're walking in faith, trusting God's promise to be with us, faith positions us to be part of the greatest story in human history. And that is not hyperbole on my part this morning. The greatest story in human history is the story into which God has invited you and I. Now, only one person, Mary, was chosen to uh, conceive and bring forth the king physically. But everyone else who believes in Jesus becomes part of that same amazing redemptive story that we see played out in the, passage, in, in the pages and passages of Scripture. The bringing of the good news of Jesus to all people in the world and then living the good news of Jesus before all the people in the world. That's what we've been invited into. Faith is the dynamic reality, guys, that ensures we will be participants in history, in his story. Not simply observers. It ensures that we live as possessors of the king and not just professors of the king. You can profess, profess your faith in Christ, and so you should. But we want to possess it. And the scripture tells us that we can do that. Paul said, the, faith I, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That was the way that he lived. When we live the life we live now by faith in Jesus, we become an active part of that greatest story the world has ever seen. And what is that story? It's the revelation of the King of Kings. It's his mission in the earth into which he has called us to be participants. It's a reality of his eternal rule and reign that's made clear in the passage of scripture we just read this morning. Let's truly, by faith, be a part of that story into which we've been invited. Okay, the last thing I want to say is this. Mary was a courageous believer, and in this sense, she was like her husband. Last week, we were talking about Joseph as being courageous, but there was a courage to what Mary did. When the angel came and gave her that message, Mary was understandably startled, right? Maybe that's an understatement. She was greatly troubled. The scripture said she was troubled. She was disturbed. She was bewildered by the angel's words. She didn't just say, oh, cool. Now, we're not told what form the angel took when he appeared to Mary, but, you know, when an angel appeared to Zechariah, the husband of Mary's cousin, it says in Scripture, he was startled and gripped with fear. And I think there may have been a fear reaction on her part, too, because Gabriel said, hey, you don't have to be afraid. People always want to see angels. I'm, I'm like... Yeah, but you know what? I think that might, you know, that might really scare me if one suddenly showed up. And Gabriel just showed up at the foot of my bed or something. Um, it would be cool <laughs> retroactively, but at the time, I think that would be just pretty frightening. 
And the angel told Mary not to be afraid. Then he said this amazing prediction. The angel delivered God's word to Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And for most of us, when we're going to have a child, it's a joyful time. And we have the, and for some time now, we've had the capacity to be able to determine the sex of the child before the child is born. God was way ahead of the game. Mary knew the sex of the child before she was even pregnant. <laughs> That's what it says. And also, what name she would, she didn't have to go through, ah, what kind of name are we going to come up with? Come on. Is it a family name, a cool name? She didn't have to get the book and go through the names, go online, you know, deal with the family if you haven't selected one of their names and all that stuff. He said, hey, not only are you going to have a boy, here's the name. You're going to call him Jesus, which was kind of a common name in Jewish circles. It was Hebrew name. Yeshua is a form of Joshua. It's kind of a contraction of two words, Yahweh and Shua, Yahweh saves or Yahweh is savior is essentially the meaning of that word. Which obviously was so totally apropos for who Jesus was and was going to be, right? He was born to be Savior. Joseph would be told in a dream, by the way, in Matthew 1, 21, Jesus, <clears throat> he would be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel now declares to the child, that, that declares that this child would quite literally be divine. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And who is the most high? God. And in verse 35, makes it clear that the angel says he will be called the son of God. Not just any son, the son of God. Being the son of someone means you share in that person's bloodline what we would refer to as DNA, right? Now, while God, of course, didn't have a bloodline in that sense, the statement tells us that Jesus had the same spiritual essence as God himself. In other words, his DNA was divine. He would fulfill God's promise, the promise sent one to Israel, the Messiah, the one who would forever occupy the office of king of Israel. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, he said. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Every Jewish man and woman would have recognized these words that were referring to the Messiah. Yet Mary could not, I believe, have fully understood what she was being told. Her human son would be divine and would serve as king over a never-ending kingdom. Luke tells us that when Mary heard this, she treasured it. She treasured what she'd heard. And in Luke 2.19, it says, she pondered it in her heart. But first, she wanted to know something. Like, how is this going to be possible? She asked for an explanation. You know, it's okay to ask God for an explanation. If God calls you to do something and you're like, I don't get this. It's okay to ask God for an explanation. Mary, 
Mary was told she was going to get pregnant and give birth to the son, right? That he would be deity. That he would one day be king of Israel, of this eternal unending kingdom. And Mary asked the angel, how could this be possible? She says, since I'm a virgin. It, it doesn't compute. I don't understand how this can be. And I want you to understand this. To ask God for an explanation is not necessarily being tantamount to unbelief. I don't believe it was in Mary's case. She believed what she was told. She didn't do what Zechariah did. Zechariah wanted a confirmation. She was not asking for a confirmation. She was asking for an explanation. She simply didn't understand how it could be possible for her to become pregnant knowing that she had never been with Joseph. Literally, her response is, since a man I know not, or since I have had no sexual relationship with a man, I don't understand how what you're saying can now come about and be true. I believe, but I don't understand it. I need some kind of explanation. She didn't do what Sarah did in the Old Testament. You remember Sarah, Sarah and Abraham? When Sarah was told she was going to have a babe in her own old age, she said, you've got to be kidding. She started laughing. Check out the scriptural record. She laughed when she heard that she, in her old age, was going to have a son. Mary didn't respond that way. And what she to was told was going to happen was a much bigger stretch no pun intended, than what, Mary, uh, than what Sarah was going to have to deal with. She simply asked for clarification about what was going to happen. And I don't think Mary was sat there thinking of Isaiah 7.14 at the time, you know, where God said that a virgin was going to be with child and, and bring forth. I, I don't think that that was probably going through her mind at the time. But something in the tone and force and revelation of the message from the angel called her to understand that this was something that was going to happen immediately or imminently. And Mary was soon to be told that she was going to become pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and create a child within her womb. And this is why the Holy One within her, we're told in the text, was going to be called the Son of God. That image of the Most High overshadowing. I mean, there is something mysterious and supernaturally wonderful about the heart of this story that we're celebrating at Christmas. The Holy Spirit overshadowing someone. That image in that, in that kind of picture, it's almost, it's almost like it takes us back to the beginning of Scripture where the Spirit is hovering over the waters. The same Spirit hovering over the waters prior to the order that that spirit brought in creation. We see it right there at the uh, beginning of the biblical record. When the temple is put together, what happens? That the, the glory of God descends, envelops the temple of God. And here you have the life of this young girl and she's overshadowed by the glory of God, by the presence of God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, something supernatural, something God-oriented is going to happen. And we find out that Elizabeth, 
pregnancy was also proof of God's power. And the story tells us that she was in her uh, older age and, and that she, who was barren and older, was now already in her sixth month. She was well into her pregnancy. And, and you know the story that Mary goes and visits her and it's an incredible kind of encounter. But this is another kind of verification, if you like, of God's supernatural inbreaking in the story. And Mary obeyed the Lord. This is what I want to close with. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Knowing something of this enormity was going to be happening in her life. Knowing that there was a price that she might have to pay for this. We, we read the story now after the fact. She was living it in the moment. She did not know how Joseph was going to respond to this. She did not know how her family would respond, how the community respond, what this would mean for her life in the future. She was living in the moment of this revelation. And her response was, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. You know, I've talked a little bit this morning about the potential cost for her, and I just mentioned it again then. But you know what's really interesting in the scriptural account? Mary never says anything about that. She doesn't say, oh my, this is really going to be tough for me. There's no reference to her articulating anything about the cost this might mean for her personally. Her response is a faith-oriented one, a simple one, a one of servanthood and one of trust and belief, one of faith. There's like a childlike quality to the simplicity of Mary's faith that we can learn from. I believe her words, those words I just read to you, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you. I have to believe that those words and that response brought joy to the heart of God. And only confirmed for God that choice in his grace and sovereignty to put his favor upon Mary and call her to this unique historic calling. She surrendered herself to the Lord. Listen, the last thing I want to say about faith is this. Faith means we do what God says regardless of the cost. And that's easy for me to say this morning. That's tough for us to live. It's tough for me to live. But faith, I believe, does mean in relationship with our God that we do what he says, regardless of the cost or potential costs associated with it. I mean, our choice to believe in Jesus has this at the center of it, doesn't it? When we decide to put our faith in Christ, there is a cost associated with that. There's great joy, there's great blessing, there's the favor of God, there's a re relationship and reconciliation with our Father. But there is a cost to be paid for following Jesus. And Jesus is not apologetic about that, nor does he rationalize that. And faith comes when we hear God. Romans, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Mary heard the word of God through the voice of and the person of Gabriel, and she responded to that word. And that, I believe, that simple response was not only a faith response, but one that can therefore 
uh, informed her faith and developed it and cultivated it. Listen, we have been given in this word, Peter says, great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature. I said earlier, we have been invited to participate and be actively involved in the greatest story in history. The story of God's redemption in Christ and his mission in the earth and his coming kingdom. We have been given great and precious promises. Not just so that we can read the Bible and memorize this stuff. That's good. That's important. But it's so that we can actually participate in the divine nature. In this relationship with God. That's what Mary did. She participated in the divine nature. Now in her case, it was in a very unique way. But God has called all of us to do that. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. So I end with this this morning. Whatever the circumstances of your life, whatever situation God calls you into, whatever call God places upon your life, whatever the cost of that call, I encourage you and I encourage my heart this morning, let's respond in obedience and faith to the Lord. Let's not complicate it. Let's keep it at core what it is. A simple response in relationship to the living God. And then the things that seem impossible to us won't be. They'll become possible. Mary's story is a story of faith. It may be a story of other things too. But it's a story of faith. A faith begun in her as a young woman, as a teenager. A faith based on God's word, spoken by God's messenger Gabriel. A faith that bowed to the will of God. She was obedient to him and his plan. Faith then is a choice we make to believe and obey God. So let me ask you this this morning. And this is a rhetorical question. It's directed at me too. So do you believe what God has said to you? Are you embracing and obeying the word that God has and is speaking to you in your life? God has declared you to be someone. He's also called you to do something. Are you embracing and obeying his word? Am I doing that? When by faith you are who God says you are, and when by faith you do what God says you are to do, I really do believe you will be the kind of kingdom change agent in the world, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, wherever it is that God has placed you. Your age won't hinder you or limit you, whether you're young or old. The unique part that God has called you to play, whatever that is, won't be a hindrance or a limit to you. The cost that he asks you to pay won't hinder you or be a limit to you when you respond in faith. Why? Because this story tells us something very clearly, and that is simply this, that with God... Nothing, nothing is impossible. Nothing. 